morning, good afternoon, or good evening. And welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Ariel Lahon, author of the novel I Was Anastasia, recently published in paperback. Ariel came to Winston-Salem for Bookmarks' movable feast back in February, and it's great to have a chance to catch up with her again. Ariel, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Before we get to your book, I want to ask you how you enjoyed your experience at Movable Feast, and if you could tell our listeners a little bit about how that event works. Yeah, I actually loved it. It's, that was my first time to Winston-Salem, but I have done a handful of Movable Feasts before, and the best way I know to describe it is like literary speed dating. <laughs> You get about 10 minutes at a table full of avid readers to discuss your novel and take questions and chat about all things books and writing, and then a bell rings and you move again. So it actually is kind of great as a writer because it really forces you to hone the description of your book, which I think is very helpful because we're often asked, what is your book about? And you can tell them quickly. Yeah. I, I had an inter- interesting experience myself because one of our writers had to cancel at the last minute. And so I ended up standing in and I found myself sitting at tables with people who had already read my latest book because I'm a local guy and my latest book came out two years ago. And so they're like, what's the next book? And it was it was a really good practice to start talking about a book that is not yet published and I haven't really thought about how to talk about it. And by the end of the day, I'd sort of, like you said, honed it down to about 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, your new novel, I Was Anastasia, tells a story that we've heard many times before in many different forms, and that's the story of Anastasia Romanoff, the daughter of the mm-hmm. last Tsar of Russia. What did you hope to bring to this story that hasn't been there before? What I wanted to do specifically with this novel that many of the books, or sorry, the novels about Anastasia have not addressed is the story of a woman named Anna Anderson who for 50 years claimed to be Anastasia Romanov. She claimed that she had survived that massacre in Ekaterinburg and that she was the only living child of the Tsar of Russia. And while we know Anastasia's story incredibly well, most people aren't familiar with Anna Anderson's. And I loved the idea of weaving the two of them together back and forth and alternating points of view to show how these two stories were intricately related to one another. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's something especially relevant about that story today? I do. I I say this a lot when I talk to book groups. I think the reason that story has lingered in the public imagination for so long is because the tragedy is so unspeakable. We know that the Tsar and his wife were terrible rulers. They drove their country into the ground. I mean, their people suffered terribly under them. And you can absolutely argue that they should have been removed from the throne. You could even argue that they should have faced some sort of prison time for the way they ruled their people. But absolutely no one can say that an entire family, including five innocent children, should have been led into a basement and killed by firing squad. Nobody can justify that. 
And when the world heard what happened, just collectively, the world was absolutely appalled. And that tragedy just stuck in the public consciousness. And then a few years later, this woman comes forward and she claims to have survived. And everyone kind of looked up and thought, oh my gosh, maybe there is something of a happy ending. Maybe one of them made it out. And this one woman sort of single-handedly gave hope. And that's a really powerful thing. Yeah, yeah. So how old was Anastasia at the time of the of the massacre? She had just turned 17. And was she the youngest of the children? She was not. She was the fourth daughter. So she had okay. three older sisters, and then they had a younger brother. Right, right. Uh, for those readers who, who may not be completely familiar with, with the, the story, walk us through a little bit of, of the history leading up to that. You know, we're, we're at the time of the Russian Revolution, mm-hmm. but at the, at the beginning of your story, the Tsar and his family are leading this, you know, very opulent lifestyle in a palace, I guess you would say. Yeah, uh, yeah, just outside St. Petersburg. And, and, and so how does it go from that to there in a basement in Siberia? Siberia, yeah. yeah. Well, the story begins, Anastasia's part of the story begins in February 1917 when the revolution broke open in Russia. And she literally stands there at their window and she opens the curtains and there are soldiers storming onto the palace grounds. The family was immediately put under house arrest by members of the provisional government, the people that had come in and removed the czar from the throne. And they stayed at that palace for six months. Most of their staff was fired. They had a very small handful of servants that remained with them. They couldn't leave the grounds. They went from this massive life of decadence and opulence to having to farm their own food in the garden. And then in August of 1917, the provisional government moved them out of St. Petersburg into Siberia to the far reaches of nowhere, in essence, originally to protect them because they knew that their lives were in danger. Mm -hmm. But once they got to this far outpost, the Bolsheviks staged a second revolution, took power from the provisional government, and began their concerted effort to destroy the czar and his family. And it was about a year later that they were moved finally to a town called Ekaterinburg in Siberia, where in July of 1918... The family met their final end. So this is the story that you you tell back and forth with the story of yes. of Anna Anderson and the way you open the book. I'm kind of hoping you have a copy of the book handy because yeah, I love the way you begin this novel. You begin sort of staring the reader right in the eye and issuing this challenge, and it yes. immediately makes the book feel like not just a confessional, but like a, a personal relationship between. Uh, between Anna and the reader. So I was wondering if you would read that opening for us um, and then afterwards sort of tell us how you decided to land on that as the beginning of your novel. Sure. Um, It's it's so funny. They call it breaking the fourth wall where a character talks directly to a reader and I'd never done it before, but it seemed to work perfectly for this particular novel. So the very first page in the book is called Fair Warning and it begins like this. If I tell you what happened that night in Ekaterinburg, I will have to unwind my memory, all the twisted coils, and lay it in your palm. It will be the gift and the curse I bestow upon you, a confession for which you may never forgive me. 
Are you ready for that? Can you hold this truth in your hand and not crush it like the rest of them? Because I do not think you can. I do not think you are brave enough. But, like so many others through the years, you have asked, Am I truly Anastasia Romanov, a beloved daughter, a revered icon, a Russian Grand Duchess? Or am I an imposter, a fraud, a liar? the thief of another woman's legacy. That is for you to decide, of course. Countless others have rendered their verdict. Now it is your turn. But if you want the truth, you must pay attention. Do not daydream or drift off. Do not speak or interrupt. You will have your answers. But first, you must understand why the years have brought me to this point and why such loss has made the journey necessary. When I am finished, and only then, will you have the right to tell me who I am. Are you ready? Good. Let us begin. I love that you you flat out say to the reader, you have to pay attention. Yes. Um, Because, you know, it just, it, it... I think readers have a responsibility um, to a text. I mean, we've talked a lot on this show about the fact that that a novel is a, a joint project between a writer and a reader. And mm-hmm. I like the way that you really lay that out on the front page. You sort of remind the readers of, of that fact. Well, in this case, I really had to because what they don't know from reading the back cover copy or really from that introduction is that half of this novel is told backward. Anna Anderson's half begins at the end of her life and slowly ticks backward as Anastasia's half is moving forward consecutively. And they really collide right in the middle at a pivotal pivotal point in the book. But the reader can't know that up front. So the only way I had to tell them was to let them know on the first page, you have to pay attention. Pay attention, yeah. So um, I've also written novels that move around in time, and and as yours does, and you um, are very kind to the reader by telling us um, at the beginning of each (laughs) section sort of where and when we are, because it does does hop around quite a bit, and sometimes you're in a a, a specific chapter is moving backwards, or, uh, you know, a section is previous to the... So how did you decide that you wanted to tell the story in that particular order? Well, it's one of those things. When you commit to a story that so many people are familiar with, and to be honest, that so many people already feel like they know how it ends, you really have to tackle the actual structure in a new and fresh way. So I knew I needed to tell it in a new way, but I also knew in looking at these two different storylines that it really was the only way to tell this particular story because the central question is, did Anastasia survive? And if so, is Anna Anderson Anastasia? And what that meant, both for people really familiar with the story, but also people who were coming to it somewhat oblivious, is that I have to make you question everything you think you know. I've got to make you doubt And being able to tell the story in this way, forward and backward, I think gave it the perfect element of uncertainty in the mind of the reader. (laughs) I've spoken to a lot of historical novelists, and of course I've written historical novels myself, and there's this sort of range of opinion about 
research and about how much mm-hmm. research to do. Um, and there's some, there's on one end, we have, you should know every single detail. You should get everything perfectly right. On the other hand, end we have just know the general outline, because if you know too much, you get distracted from the fact that you're writing a novel and you end up writing a work of, of nonfiction. Where, where do you land on that spectrum? Um, as odd as it sounds, both camps. <laughs> I, I absolutely love research and I do believe in getting it right. It would be wrong of me to try to change history in my novels, specifically when most of them are about really well-known people or events, because I will get hate mail for that and it's just not worth it. But the flip side is you can go so far down the research rabbit hole that A, you either never start to write, or Mm -hmm. B, like you said, you end up producing something that reads like a biography. So for me, my particular process, I really do have to research. I have to plot. I have to know the full scope of the story before I begin reading. And I always aim to stick to the facts that can be proven by history. But what I do is I try to find my story in the cracks, the things we don't know for sure, the questions that have remained unanswered over time. And so I kind of commit to both. I want to tell the truth. I want to be accurate. But I also want to find my story in the legitimate gray areas. Because mm-hmm. there is, in this story, certainly there's a lot that we don't know. Oh, yeah. Um, the book is set in a lot of different places. You mentioned, um, you know, these towns in Siberia, the, this palace outside of St. Petersburg, but it's also uh, places in Germany, places in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, a place that I know well. Mm-hmm. Um, did you travel to some of these places in, in the course of doing your research? And, and if so, what kind of experience was that? I wish I could have. Um, <laughs> sadly, I, I couldn't. My husband and I have four relatively young boys. My ability to travel is often limited to books, as it is for most people. What I did, however, like I said, I am a huge believer in research. I read every single thing I could get my hands on about the Romanovs, probably close to 50 books by the time all was said and done. I read... Primarily, a lot of the letters they wrote while in captivity, and there were incredible descriptions, not just of scenery, but their own emotional landscape while they were in captivity. And then, of course, I could fill in the rest from pictures and maps and virtual tours. Those come in really handy. And it's at that point, when it comes to physical locations, I find it easier because you can always pull up a picture of of a place and recreate it that way. What's harder, I think, is the internal life of a character. And for that, I had to rely on the writings of the family itself. Or, in the case of Anna Anderson, interviews that she gave or biographies that were written about her. I think especially about your descriptions of Siberia and that that first train trip that they took, Mm -hmm. you know, to get there. And then the descriptions of the house and this little town and you're, you know, it's not only that you're describing something that you say, yes, you could pull up a picture, but you're describing it the way it was a hundred years ago too. (laughs) And and I just, I just feel like I'm there and the the weather mm -hmm. and the, you know, what the, what the the grit on the streets and everything else just, um, it just seems to really come to life. I think. Thank you. I work so hard to make it real. I, I don't know. I, I want to do these stories justice. And that's part of my particular job in 
choosing real people and real events, I do feel there's a responsibility there to yeah. tell the story right and to tell it well. And, and I think, you know, there, there does come a point as a writer where you, you have to go, you know, none of my readers have walked down the street of a small yes. town in Siberia <laughs> in 1917. So I can make a little bit of decision on my own about what the mud felt like. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, yes. I, I, and that's probably where my biggest creative license comes in. Yeah. Details that no one knows. Yeah. And I, I will find myself researching and researching, trying to find out, you know, some sort of little detail about life a hundred years ago and finally go, well, if I've spent, you know, four hours <laughs> trying to figure out what the train fare was from, you know, New York to Philadelphia and I can't find out, then my readers probably don't know either. You know? Yes. Although there, sometimes you'd be surprised. There was, with my first novel, I put in a detail about thread. Technically it was accurate, but a number of my readers went to Google and Google told them otherwise. And I got mail mm. for a good year and a half about polyester thread. Yeah. I, so I you just the, never know. I had the same thing with, I, I have a scene in the Bookman's Tale that's set in a rare book library in the mid 1980s. And the person is wearing cotton gloves. And I get these emails from rare book librarians who say, <laughs> we don't wear cotton gloves anymore to look at rare books. And I always know that those are younger librarians because back mm-hmm. in the 80s, we did that. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yes. So without giving us any spoilers, can you tell mm-hmm. us did, if you entered into this project with a specific belief about the identity of Anna Anderson and if, if your preconceived notions shaped the novel in any way or were overturned in the process of writing? I would say yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> um, the history is pretty solid. Um the story, though, once you get in and once you realize as a novelist, these aren't characters that I have made up. These were real people who really lived, who really experienced these things. What startles me every single time I get deep into a novel is the compassion I find. And it becomes less about am I right, am I wrong, and more about how do I make them come alive to the reader? How do I make the reader care deeply about these people? And then how do I surprise them? Yeah, yeah. And And with this particular story, it was also about, I mean, the central question absolutely is, did Anastasia survive? But it's also, why does this story still matter and why do we still care about it? Right, right. And and I think, um, you know, what you said about compassion, ultimately it becomes about you know, creating believable characters that the, that the reader cares about. And I'm sure I'm not the only reader for whom this is the case, but I found myself like in the early chapters when I'm first starting to get into the story, I would constantly be going, is that real? Did that really happen? I can look that up. Let me look that up. And I, mm-hmm. and I, that gradually fell away as I became more connected to the characters and it, it didn't really matter if this detail was real or that detail is real. Cause I wanted to, I was in the life of the characters. And I think that's right. something that a historical fiction can really um, succeed in doing well. Oh, absolutely. I, I say this all the time, but everybody has gaps in their education. None of us make it through any educational system with a perfectly solid <laughs> education in history. And for me, one of the things that I love the most is every time I commit to a novel, I have to become a sort of a short-term expert in the yeah. subject. And yeah. I've always chosen novels or subjects that I know very little about. And it I learned so much in the process. And 
I'm grateful for it at the end, even though the writing is difficult. And I often have readers write in and say, you know, I knew nothing about this. And then I went to the library and I got three books on the subject. Yeah. And I find it really gratifying. Yeah, I, I, I agree that I've probably had the most fun researching books where I knew the least about the topic to begin with go, going into it. Um, yeah. And it is wonderful. I've had that, I had that experience with my novel first impressions in which Jane Austen is a character. A lot of people would come to me afterwards and, and go, you know, I never read pride and prejudice, but I read your novel. And then I went and read pride and prejudice. I was like, yeah, that's, oh, that's, that's awesome. what you're supposed to do. I, yeah. I find a lot of times when I'm doing research, you know, I'll enter in, I'll be trying to find out some, something that, that I can use in a certain scene. And I'll have an idea of what I might turn up. And then what I end up turning up is, so much more surprising and more mm-hmm. apt for my characters than what I th- was hoping for. Um, yeah. did, did you have moments like that that were particularly surprising or revelatory in, in your research? Oh, it, absolutely. Every single time. I, um, I I joke that in my initial research, I always go through with just a highlighter. I have to buy my books because libraries would be appalled at the way that I treat them. <laughs> I practically desecrate every research book that comes into my house. But as I'm reading, I will just highlight little details, things that fascinate me about the characters. Um, in Anastasia's case, she wasn't your typical princess. She was a tomboy. She was a little bit mouthy. She liked practical jokes and dirty jokes, honestly. And I found that fascinating. You know, we as a culture tend to think of her as the Disney princess. Right. And she wasn't. She was the fourth daughter of a family that desperately wanted a son. And the words spoken at her birth were, what a disappointment. Mm. They needed an heir, and she wasn't it. So she grew up, especially in her early, early years, under the shadow of being a disappointment. And that had to affect her personality and her character. Um, With Anna Anderson, I was fascinated by her travels around the world and the different places she went to and all of the different supporters that she had, equal amounts of supporters and detractors. And really, when I'm researching, I'm just highlighting things that I find personally fascinating, and those are the things that work their way into the novel and become sort of the backbone of these characters and their personality and their motivation. So let's talk about Anna Anderson a little bit, because I think Mm -hmm. our our readers probably don't know her story as well. I mean, I'm really struck by this novel, how you almost could have taken either one of these stories on their own, and it would have been a great novel, but to have both of them together really, really creates more tension. There's a scene where Anna is ill at her cottage in Germany. Mm-hmm. And I just thought the use of language was so great. You do this great job of using the tools of language to make the reader feel how she's kind of losing her grip on reality. Can you talk about mm-hmm. how you use language, not just to elicit emotion, but to you know elicit a gut reaction? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I don't know that anyone has ever asked it. I remember writing the scene because she's Lemons. Lemons are involved. I remember that. Lemons and sunlight. Um, And I I remember where I was when I wrote it. I was actually sitting beside a friend's swimming pool. That's what happens to me. I I think back and I remember where I was and what I was doing as I wrote the scene. But to answer your question, I don't know. Sorry, I'm struggling to answer your question, actually, because so much of the writing process is instinctual, yeah, and it yeah. happens as you really begin to tap into a character's personality. Mm-hmm. But in that particular scene, she's laying in her cottage, and she is very, very ill, and her dog, his name was Baby, is by her side, and she's aware that the dog 
is dehydrated because he's rubbing her hand with his nose and the nose is dry and she knows she needs to get up and she knows she needs to feed him and water him, but she's so ill she can't. And she's laying in this patch of sunshine and the sun is warm at first and comforting at first. And then it becomes hot and she's aware that her skin is burning her. But in her halfway delirious state, she's also wondering what the sun would taste like. Can you taste the sun? Would it be sour like a lemon? Would it burn like her skin Mm -hmm. is burning now? And I think for me to create a scene like that is simply a matter of sitting there really quiet at my desk or wherever I am and just asking lots of questions. I think we underestimate the power of a question when it comes to creating prose. And sometimes for an author, it's simply a matter of asking myself questions. What is she thinking? What does she feel like? What is it? What does your mind do as you begin to hallucinate and how would those little threads be, start to become untethered? I love and then to, you just explore. I love to think that you're sitting by the pool while you're writing about the sun. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I will, I will close my eyes. I will walk around the room and, mm-hmm. and try to channel a character, you know? So I think, I think that's, that's absolutely right. There's a great scene, at least for me as a film buff, it's a great scene um, where Anna meets Ingrid Bergman on the set of the yes. film, Anastasia. Uh, I'm wondering, had you seen the film before you worked on the book, and did it influence the way you approached it at all? I had not, and honestly, I have not. I don't know how other people are when they write. I find it really difficult to read fiction when I'm writing it, for starters, mostly because it makes me want to quit. Someone else's beautiful, finished work is depressing when I'm right in the middle of one. But I also really have to stay away from other fictional accounts of my subject. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't ever want to be accused of you know, taking from someone. But I also find that I'm really susceptible to, to that imagery and to those words and to the plot. And I just, I want it to be mine. Yeah, yeah. So I, this is going to sound really strange, when I am in the middle of a novel, I'm so absolutely immersed in the subject that it becomes all-consuming. And then by the time I'm done and I've gone through the writing and the editing and the copy editing, I don't ever, I'm just, I'm so done with the subject that I need distance. (laughs) And it really does take me a a year or two to recover from that. So it's probably going to be a couple more years before I (laughs) sit down with Ingrid Bergman. Right. (laughs) Anna says to Ingrid, please do not portray me as a fool. Um, do we know what Anna thought about Bergman's portrayal? We don't. And we actually uh, have no record of the conversation yeah. that they had. Um, I, that particular line came from the fact that as you read the biographies of Anna Anderson, and there are very few of them, and it's interesting to note, they were all written by friends, mm-hmm. people that knew her in real life. But she was very open about her feelings and how she was portrayed in the press and how she was treated by her detractors. She hated, she hated being shown as this insipid, dumb, foolish woman. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was easy to imagine that as she's sitting there knowing that her life story will be made into a movie by the biggest movie star of the time, it's worth noting that. Bergman won an Academy Award the following year for that role. Um, I could imagine her just saying, please, please don't make me look like a fool. 
I mean, to me, that that scene, and it's just a, I don't want to dwell on it too long because it's a it's a short scene in in mm-hmm. you know a long novel, but. I think it gets back to what you were talking about, about filling in the gaps. That's like a historical novelist's dream moment. My, yeah. my character meets Ingrid Bergman and nobody knows what they said. So I get to make up the conversation. I mean, yes. that's fantastic. Yes. You know? It's great. And that, honestly, I think actually so far the scenes you've pointed out specifically are scenes that really did happen, but there is no record of. Right. Right. And so Perhaps that is where I have the most fun because I have the most room to create. Um, but even in a novel like this where so much is known, there's still room to play. There's room to imagine. There's room to ask questions and explore things that we don't know for sure. Yeah. And one of the things I have enjoyed doing is having a, a fictional character be in a real event. And so we know the details of the event, but we don't mm-hmm. necessarily know what it was like just for an ordinary person, you know, on the street during the San Francisco earthquake, for instance, that is in, yes. in my new novel coming up or some, some other things like that. And, and also to just sort of suss out these little events that were a big deal at the time that have been mm-hmm. sort of forgotten over the years. Yeah. Um, Anna has this interesting habit of naming people without using names. She talks about <laughs> yes. the producer and the heiress and so on. Uh, is, does that, is that something she actually did? Is that something that you, you gave to her? And how do you think that creates, um, what, what do you think that habit does to her relationship with the reader? For me, honestly, I, whether or not she did that, I have no idea. It was a very specific technique I used Anna's story spans 50 years and three continents, and she meets so many people. And I don't, I don't know how you are as a reader, but for me, when there are too many actual names, oh, I yeah. cannot keep them straight. Yeah. So for me, it was an ability to go, oh, okay, there's one scene in the book where she meets with Ingrid Bergman, and in her head, she's calling her the actress. And it was a way to just delineate and give people specific roles without clogging up the book with too many names, but also the way that she chooses names are descriptive of the characters themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a nurse in an asylum that she's in that she calls the duck. And it's just an abbreviation for a German insult, really. Yeah. But it's memorable. And mm-hmm. when you have this many characters, it's it becomes untenable as an author. In the real story, there's a cast of characters of sorry, hundreds. And you can't have hundreds of characters in a book. So it was a real challenge to condense some people. Um, for instance, there were two tutors in the Romanov family. I didn't have room for both of them in the book. And then on top of just numerous people, so many of them were Russian and had these very complicated, difficult mm. to pronounce surnames. Yeah. So there does come a point as an author where you have to go, okay, I have to make this easier on the author. I have to make these characters memorable. How do I do that? Yeah. I think, you know, when you said you can't have a novel with hundreds of characters, and I immediately think, you know, I start thinking Tolstoy. I think start thinking about Russian novels. You know, those are the ones (laughs) that have the the giant cast of characters where you open it up on the front page. There's this person is his second cousin and so on. But I I think... I think also that okay. ha- habit of hers, um, it tells us something about her, too. It, it, it sort of, there's kind of this sense of, I don't know if superiority is the right word, but sort of setting herself aside, like, like these people aren't important enough for me to give them names. I am the important person. They are the Yes, they are or the not important players. enough to learn their names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Along with the reality that she was 
constantly shuffled from one home to another, from one town to another, from one country to another. Over 50 years, you meet countless people. And finally, I think she was like, enough, done. I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to bother knowing your name. You're not going to be in my life six months from now. You can be the cook. Yeah. And that was one of the things I think was most surprising to me about her story. I mean, I knew a, a little bit about her story. I knew that there was this person who, who claimed to be Anastasia, but but that she, as you said, moved around from so many different countries, so many different places, so many, you know, she's in, she's living in a fancy apartment on Central Park West, and then she's in a, she's in a cottage in Germany, and she's, in, you know, and I just thought that was, when you started to uncover that story, you must have immediately thought, yeah, there's there really is a novel here. Is it was is there a moment in the research like when when you started, did you know there was going to be this much there, or were you thinking maybe I can write a novel about this? Or I didn't. And to be honest with you, I actually was not planning on writing this novel at all. I'd finished my last novel, um, Flight of Dreams. It's about the last flight of the Hindenburg, mm-hmm. and I decided that I was going to write about Alcatraz next. I wanted to write about the famous 1963 escapes. And I was immersed in the research. I had everything ready to go. I was almost ready to start writing the novel. And I was online one day, and I read this article about Anna Anderson and how two years after the Romanov family was um, executed, she was found floating in a canal in Berlin. And they took her to the hospital, and they did an examination. And her body was riddled with these really terrible scars, and it was two years after that, that she first claimed to be Anastasia. And I remember sitting there and reading that, and all of the little hairs stood up on the back of my neck, Mm -hmm. which is my physiological sign that I have found the right book. Every novel I've ever committed to, that has happened. Yeah. Um, And it, I didn't know anything about her. I knew nothing about her. I knew very little about Anastasia, to be honest. And that's when I began researching. But I think I knew that moment. It's just such a visceral scene. Yeah. I, I think that's uh, so often that's the case that we you're looking for one thing and, and you you find something else. That's mm-hmm. This is one of the things that I, I love the fact that I can do so much research right here on my desktop. But on the other yes. hand, I find that I have a lot less serendipity than I used to have in libraries with microfilms oh, and newspapers yes. and things like that where you'd go, what's that story over there? Oh, and, and often, yeah, the thing I wasn't looking for was the thing that was – was the trigger, you know? Yeah. Um, so next time you're in Winston-Salem, this is, a, this is a slight digression for our listeners, but next time you're in Winston-Salem, I actually have inherited from my stepmother's father's stamp collection, a couple of covers that crossed the Atlantic on the first flight of the Hindenburg. <gasps> yeah. They're really cool. It's got like a picture of the Hindenburg on it and it says first flight and everything. And um, you know that that is incredibly valuable. Yeah. Don't yeah, you? yeah. They're, they're, it they're, is they're socked shockingly away. valuable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so one of the things I always work very hard to craft in my books and that I always look for carefully in historical novels, uh, and some readers may not even notice this or read it, but I think it's so important. And that's the author's note. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the art of the author's note and its place in historical fiction? I, well, People might disagree with me here. I love, I love, I love, I love the author's note. It's like you read the novel, you feel everything, and then you get to sit down and have a chat with the author himself or herself right. and find out the what and the why and the how. I have to be honest, I learned 
this skill, if that's what you want to call it, from Stephen King, from mm. reading his books. And I actually talk about that at the beginning of mine because I have to tell the reader, I love reading the author's notes first. It's just a quirk of mine. And several readers have said, oh, I wish I hadn't read the author's note on your first or second book because I give spoilers. I explain yeah. what happened, what's yeah. real, what's not. So I had to tell the author or the reader immediately, stop here, <laughs> come back later. You'll be very unhappy if you read this before you read the book. Um, but I learned to write them from reading Stephen King novels as a teenager. He's mm. so clever and it's so funny. And you learn, you learn how the author felt and lived as they were writing the story. And I think it gives you finally this full picture view of the novel itself because you learn a little bit about their mental state yeah. as they were writing. You learn what they found funny or frustrating or invigorating as they wrote. And then you begin thinking back possibly to those scenes. Uh, there's one with my first novel. There's a scene in a bathroom. And readers tell me constantly that after they read the author's note, they go back and they read this scene in the bathroom where the three main characters are having a conversation. Because there's what's being said, but then there's what's really being said. Right. And you don't realize that they're actually two entirely different conversations until the book is finished. Mm -hmm. I think oh, it's fun. Yeah, I, I think they're great fun. And, and knowing that there's an author's note there at the end also makes me less... Uh, questioning about what's real and what's not real because I know, let me just read the novel, enjoy the novel, and at the end, the author will tell me, you know, yeah. that, that yes. what's, what's, what's real and what isn't. Um, and I can also tell readers who don't read the author's note because I'll get these messages from readers about how <laughs> I, I looked up so-and-so in, on Wikipedia and I can't find him anywhere. I'm like, yeah, he's a fictional character. <laughs> that would be why. <laughs> you know? He's not real. Um, it, in your author's note, one of the things you, you say that I just love is you describe a novel as a 350-page sleepover. Can, mm -hmm. can you explain what you mean by that? I mean, I don't know about you, but I read in bed at night. I, I try to make it the last thing I do before I go to sleep. I'll read a chapter, even on my most exhausting days. And I, I think there's a line in there that I said that, you know, every book I've ever read has gone to bed with me at some point in the reading process. You, you commit to book the way that you commit to a sleepover, the time, the emotion, the energy, and it goes with you. I mean, it... I have four kids, so I spend a lot of my time in carpool. I spend a lot of my time on the baseball fields. And the novels I'm reading go with me, and they are worse for wear. <laughs> and as a reader, though, or sorry, as a writer, I'm aware that most readers are like that. I'm aware that I my books often are being read in small chunks of time because we're a busy society. So I'm very mindful about the length of my chapters. Yeah. If I have a long chapter, I have frequent scene breaks. Um, I'm very mindful about not having too much narrative. I try to give the reader white space on the page because I want them, because I know they're going to do this. They're going to flip ahead and go, okay, there's three more pages. I'm going to finish this scene. Right, right. But then they're going to get to the end of the scene and I'm going to make something happen that they go, ah, one more. Yeah, because the next one's only two pages long. I can get through it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then before you know it, you've got an email that somebody wrote at 3 o'clock in the morning because they stayed up half the night finishing the book. Right, right. And that is very gratifying just because it means my technique has worked. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for for 
shorter sections of narrative. As you said, in this in this day and age, it's interesting to see how the structure of novels changes according to mm-hmm. the society in, in which they're being read. So to zoom back to the beginning, as we approach the end of this interview, yes. you begin your novel with an epigram by Rudyard Kipling, um, which yes. is, if history were taught in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. Is that what you're hoping to do with this novel? Absolutely. I, I this bit of history was one of the gaps in my education. I knew very little about it. But after researching and writing the story, it's one I'll never forget. And I frequently have readers say, I didn't know anything about it, but man, I will never forget. History is important. It's important to know what has come before and who lived and how they lived. I tell my boys all the time, you know, read, read, read history. Learn to love history. There is so much to be learned about how we should live now based on what has happened in the past. Mm-hmm. We'd like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners all something to think about and some insight into you and your writing. So if you're ready, we'll begin the speed round. All righty. What word do you love to work into your writing? Ferocious. Mm-hmm. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Orb. Where's your favorite place to write? At my desk in my office. Where could you never write? Mm, Coffee shops are too loud. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Sentence fragments. I love them. (laughs) What was the first book you remember reading? It was about donuts. And I don't remember the title, but I was really young. Ooh, I wonder if it was, Four, maybe. I wonder if it was Homer Price. But after that, it oh. would be, um, no, it was not Homer Price. It was it was a picture book, and there were just okay. mountains of donuts. And after that, it would be The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh, great. What are you reading now? I am reading a book called Time After Time by Grunwald. Grunwald is her last name. It comes out in July. It's mm-hmm. a time travel novel, and it's lovely. What book would you like to have written? Oh, how much time do we have? <laughs> oh, my gosh. The 13th Tale oh, by Diane yeah. Setterfield comes yeah. to mind. Yeah. Or um, Peace Like a River by Leif yeah. Inger. What's, the Time Traveler's Wife. Mm, so many. Yeah. What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? I would love to write a really epic, thoughtful, brilliant fantasy novel, and I will never get there. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a new community gathering place and independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Ariel Lahon whose novel, I Was Anastasia, is available wherever books are sold. Ariel, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the first and 15th day of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Frances Mays, author of Under the Tuscan Sun, about her new book on Italian travel, See You in the Piazza. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.